I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Robert Kurzban. Robert Kurzban is currently an associate professor in the psychology department at the University of Pennsylvania. He founded PLEEP, the Penn Laboratory for Experimental Evolutionary Psychology, in 2003. He has published dozens of journal articles on a wide array of topics, including morality, cooperation, friendship, mate choice, supernatural beliefs, modularity, self-control, and other topics. He's the editor-in-chief of a new journal, Frontiers in Evolutionary Psychology, and co-editor-in-chief of the flagship journal of the Human Behavior and Evolution Society, Evolution and Human Behavior. Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite, Evolution and the Modular Mind, is his first book, so please give a warm welcome to Mr. Robert Kurzban. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for that kind introduction, and I want to thank you all for coming out tonight, as well as uh, Zokolo for having me. This is a, a wonderful uh, series, which I hadn't known about uh, before I got the invitation to come out here, and I just, I, I just uh, am looking forward to trying to have the opportunity to see some of these events. Um, I, I, I guess tonight was uh, free, although they're welcoming donations, but uh, given that the, the event was, was uh, gratis, I just want to emphasize that if you're not satisfied, um, I'll be happy to refund your money. Um, and I, I, I do think you're going to get your money's worth for sure. So uh, with that, I just want to uh, pass on real quickly and mention as an aside that it's true that I spend my time at the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm very lucky to be on the faculty there, but I'm actually here in the LA Basin for a while. I'm taking my sabbatical at Chapman University at the Economic Science uh, Institute, and I just wanted to uh, thank them in this kind of forum for the hospitality of, of having me. What I want to do tonight uh, is talk a little bit about some of the ideas uh, that I've been thinking about recently, and in some ways, what I really want to do is get at a really big idea, what I think is a really big idea, which is this question of how it is that we're so smart, given that we're made of bits that are so dumb. I mean, we have these neurons, and they're, right now you're sitting there with these neurons in your head, and basically all a neuron does is it either fires or it doesn't. It's either on or it's off. In and of itself, and in any individual neuron, or even a bunch of them, really isn't that smart. But what's true about humans, of course, is that, with some exceptions, and you can fill in the blank yourself, we're pretty smart. Uh, we do some pretty amazing things, and somehow the meat in your head makes us all able to do really incredible things like digest information in talks like this one and other ones in the Zocalo series. And what I want to do first is give you an answer to the question of how you can get something so smart from bits that are so dumb. I want to give you a really bad answer. And the bad answer takes me back to my first job uh, out of college, which is at Walt Disney World. Very few people know this, so now we're, this is a little secret, just me and you, so don't tell anyone. Uh, I worked at Walt Disney World on an attraction called Cranium Command. And the bit was as follows. So you, when you go to Cranium Command, uh, you find out that there's these little guys called Cranium Commandos, and uh, in particular, the star of the show is a little guy named Buzzy. He's, he's really small, even for a Cranium Commando in there. They're already pretty small. And what they do is they go inside other people's brains and they have a little control chair, a little bit like Captain Kirk does, with buttons and levers and so on, and he runs the show. So he gets information from the hypothalamus, and he gets information from different, uh, you know, the adrenal gland, played by Bobcat Goldthwait, uh, who the younger people in this audience might not remember, but those of us a little older do, uh, and he makes a great adrenal gland. And so what he does is he sits around in his chair, this is Buzzy now, not Bobcat, and he runs the show, right? So he's controlling the action, he sees what what the, the person he's in sees, a guy named Bobby, and he runs the show. And 
it's a really great attraction. It's unfortunately dark right now. I can say dark since I'm in Los Angeles and everyone knows what that means. It's not uh, operational right now uh, because of the, the sponsorship, but it was a great attraction. And what's definitely true about the attraction is that it's got to be wrong about the way your mind works. You don't get smart by putting a really, really smart thing inside the brain, right? In some ways, what this does is it invites the question, well, wait a minute. If Buzzy, the smart guy, is running the show, who's running Buzzy? Right? So what, who's, the, who's the even smaller cranium commando inside Buzzy's brain? And what that means is that the answer to the question, how do you get a brain to be smart, can't be to posit some kind of smart thing in the middle that does it all. And that leads us to what the right answer to the question is, which is that you get smart things like brains by building together lots of less smart pieces. And the way that I illustrate this is an example that's familiar I'm sure, to all of you in the room, which is a smartphone. If you think about the transition from phones to smartphones, what made them better was not that they were better at transmitting information along a wire. In fact, I had a phone call today, the call dropped three times. If anything, in some ways, phone conversations are worse than they used to be. Um, but what makes a smartphone smart is that in addition to enabling you to make a phone call, it does a ton of other useful things. You can check your stock portfolio. You can uh, check a map. You can find out where you are. You can identify local restaurants and so on. If you look at the screen of a smartphone or the multiple screens of smartphones now, they have all these little applications. And it's all these different applications that work together that make smartphones smart. Smartphones are not smart because they're great phones. They're smart because they do lots of different things. And my argument is that this is the right way to think about the human mind, about your mind. The human mind bundles together lots of different, not applications, but what I as an evolutionary biologist, if I were one, would call adaptations. Parts of the mind that are designed to bring about outcomes, that have jobs. So just like a smartphone has a job of, uh, for example, giving you the weather, giving you the news, identifying where you are in space, your mind has lots of jobs too. So you have a visual system that's responsible for taking information from the world and building it up into a representation of the world around you. You have an auditory system. You have memory systems that are responsible for uh, remembering specific words or ideas or events that have occurred. And mo most importantly for the material that I'm going to get to by the end, which is about hypocrisy, is going to be that there are all these different parts of your head that are discharging social functions. You have parts of your mind that are particularly good at doing things like building friendship, delivering benefits to offspring and kin, to detecting cheaters, to um, building preferences about who would be an appropriate uh, a mate. And what I want to say is that you can understand how you get the inconsistencies in human behavior by thinking about what happens when you get something to be smart by virtue of pull, pulling together lots of things which are by themselves relatively simple or a little bit dumber, that have little components, each of which has a job, living next to other components that have jobs. We call these parts of the mind, the things with little jobs, what I call them are modules, following the tradition in cognitive science. A module is just a way to talk about some device that has a narrow function. So the example I like to use is a photoreceptor. As you're sitting there, all of you have many, many cells in the retinas of your eyes, and all they do is sit around all day and check to see if electromagnetic radiation, light, is hitting them in a particular wavelength. And if the, if the wavelength hits them, then they say, okay, I just saw some photon, and if it doesn't, they just sit there and do nothing. And that's all that these guys do. Right? Their, their job is incredibly narrow. And what I want to argue is that that kind of architecture, 
specialized systems doing little things, when you bundle them all together, is what makes people really, really smart. But it also has some really interesting consequences. I'm going to try and do something which I've never tried before, which is to do an optical illusion with no optics. So um, I want you to all imagine that you're in a bar and you want to show this trick to a friend of yours. And so what you do is you, write, you take out a pen and you write two parallel lines on a napkin. And, so you make, and you make sure they're really equal in length. Okay? On the top one, you have arrows that are facing outward. And on the bottom one, you have arrows facing inward. And this should ring a bell for some of you who've taken intro side courses. This is the Mueller liar illusion. And when you do that, you'll find that the line that has the arrows that are facing outward looks a little bit shorter than the line that's facing outward. Right? Now, it'll appear as though they're different sizes, but you just made the lines yourself. And so you know for sure that they're equal in length. So what that means is that one part of your head, the visual system, which gets confused by illusions like this, has a belief, if you will, that the lines are unequal in length, right? So the only way that they could appear unequal is if some part of your head perceived them that way. And yet a different part of your head is, knows, has a factual representation that they're the same. What this means, and this is going to set up all, uh, all the interesting parts of human inconsistency, is that the, the same idea in your head can be represented along with its contradiction. So you could have two contradictory representations, and by that I just mean pieces of information, in one head at exactly the same time. And that's actually kind of an exciting thing about brains, which is that they can have contradictions within them by virtue of the fact that they consist of these little pieces. And that leads to all sorts of interesting things. Here's one. A study done in the uh, late 70s by uh, two authors, Nisbet and Wilson, asked people to uh, look at four pairs of pantyhose on a table outside of a mall. And he, uh, the, the experimenters simply asked people to identify which one they liked the best. What people didn't know is that before the experiment, the experimenters had randomly shuffled the four pairs of identical pantyhose and just laid them out on the table and let people pick which one was which. So they were all exactly the same. For the most part, what people did is when they were asked to answer this question, they said they pointed to one, and it was usually the one all the way on the right side of the table. We don't really know why people like the one all the right, on the right side of the table, but people do. But what is interesting about this is if you ask people why they picked that one, what happens is that people will just sort of make something up. Well, that one, I like the color on that one. Well, the one on the texture on that is a little bit better than the other ones. Well, that one looks like it would fit better. But we know that they're all identical. So basically what's happening is that people are just making up an answer. And the reason that's happening is for the same reason that you see in the optical illusion. One part of the person's mind is, is causing the decision-making to occur, pointing to the pantyhose. And another part of the mind, the one that talks, has to justify it. And it doesn't have access to that other piece of information. It doesn't know that it shows the pantyhose on the right simply because it was on the right. So it just makes up a story. This has, as I said, all sorts of interesting implications. And there are all kinds of uh, examples in which information in one part of your head doesn't move to the information in another part of your head, where you have these inconsistencies, you have ignorance, and so on. And what, I, what I've been doing with some of my work is thinking about how we can identify the different properties of these modular systems, particularly in the context of social behavior. And so what I want to do is tell you a little bit of a story about crossing the street in Philadelphia and Los Angeles. So uh, as I said, I'm, I'm on sabbatical, and, and I usually live in Philadelphia. And uh, here's the way you cross the street in Philadelphia. The most important thing, if traffic is coming from that direct, for, from your right, 
is to look straight forward. You can check out your iPhone or something else uh, and walk straight out of the interior intersection. By the way, don't try this at home. This is just, this is just for the bit. I don't want you know, any liability issues creeping up here. But you can do this. Uh, so if the, if the cars are off to your right, keep your head forward. Make sure they don't see you. Because here's what happens in drivers in Philadelphia. If they see that you have seen that they're coming, then they figure, well, he knows how to escape. He'll do it, right? <laughs> but if you keep your head facing this way, and you're, you show that you're ignorant of the impending doom of the car barreling through the intersection, most of the time they'll stop. <laughs> what this means is that ignorance can be a weapon in social interactions, right? So if I don't know something, I'm actually better off. And so what I'm going to argue, and this is going to be a crucial part of my argument, is that some of your modules, some of the parts of your head, are actually designed to be ignorant. It's actually useful not to know stuff in the context specifically of social interactions. But let me contrast that. I want to be very careful about this. There are other senses in which ignorance is not going to be helpful. Again, just looking out at the audience, it looks like many, or if not most of you, uh, probably at least might remember the video game Frogger. Uh, this was an important part of my childhood. In the video game, you control a little frog, and he's got to go across uh, many lanes of traffic, just like crossing the street in Philadelphia. But here's the thing about Frogger. If you're playing Frogger, it, and you're about to go into traffic, it absolutely doesn't help you not to look to see if the cars are coming. Because when you're playing a game against nature, in this case, against a machine, ignorance can't be an advantage. Ignorance can only help you in the context of interactions with other people, not with the world. This is a really important distinction because what we're going to see is that some modular systems can be expected to exploit the value of ignorance, and others, others should be expected not to. Let me give you an example um, from the real world. I can, make, I can uh, use these allusions to the, to the media out here since, again, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. So I want to talk about the West Wing. On the East Coast, that would mean, of course, the West Wing, the, the place. Here, I mean the television series, um, which was popular for quite a while. Uh, so in the West Wing, there's this wonderful uh, sequence with the press secretary, uh, Will Bailey, the second one, for those of you who are aficionados, not, not C.J. Craig, but, um, where he's talking about the advantages when he's being a press secretary of ignorance. He says, I do my best work when I'm the least informed person in the room. And the idea there is that as a press secretary, if I have information that's potentially damaging and someone asks me about it, I have the awkward problem of either divulging the awkward information, right, in which case now the information is out there, or denying that I have it, in which case now I'm potentially subject uh, to all the you know, possible penalties of lying as a press secretary. So I'm actually better off under certain circumstances as a press secretary when I don't know stuff. The crucial thing for the mind, and this is what I want to argue, is that you can think of all of you as having as one important part of your modular system press secretaries. These are modular systems that interact with the world, and what I want to say is that under certain circumstances, they can actually be better off being either ignorant or wrong that there is value in error because you have press secretary modules in your mind. So let me just give you an example of some cases in which we know that people are, are, um, are wrong. There's a really well-known study in which college instructors were asked how good an instructor they were. Um, and the statistic is that 94% of college instructors, people like me, uh, rate themselves as above average teachers. 68% rank themselves in the top quarter. I rank myself in the top quarter, but I happen to be right about this, of course. <laughs> the question is, why? Why is it that people are wrong in this way? 
right? And you've probably seen stuff about this, how we, um, you know, we are self-deceived or we are unrealistically optimistic. And one of the things that I've been doing is cataloging all these sorts of cases. And some of the studies about this are as funny as that particular statistic. I just want to give you two different kinds of answers to that question, why we're wrong about these things. These things. And one of them is a mod sort of a, an answer that relies on this notion of modularity. And one of them is the answer that everyone in my discipline except for me seems to think is right. And I'll start with that one. So here's the kind of the intuitive answer. The intuitive answer is Rob thinks he's a great teacher because Rob likes to feel good about himself. And if he thinks he's a great teacher, he feels better about himself. So that's why he's wrong about this stuff. So this is an answer that sort of turns on, turns on this intuitive notion, which is big out here in California, of self-esteem, right? Self-esteem is everything. How does Rob build his self-esteem? Well, he thinks he's a great teacher. He thinks uh, all these sort of great things are going to happen to him and so on. What I want to argue is that there's a couple different problems with that style of answer. And the main one that I want to get at is the following. When you think about the modules that are in your head. The only reason you have those modules are by virtue of evolution, is because these modules have jobs that are good at accomplishing goals which are relevant to reproductive success. So you can see the world because you gotta figure out how to move around the world, not run into a tree and fall off a cliff and so on, right? You have a memory because you have to remember who did what to you last time so you can do unto them as they did unto you last time, right? Um, same thing for the social, you have friendship systems to build friendship networks so that if a fight breaks out, you have people who will support you in the context of that conflict. You have mechanisms which are designed to find other people attractive if they're of the appropriate age and and sex and so on, by virtue of the fact that individuals without those systems didn't make good mating choices. The argument that your modules are designed to make you happy, from an evolutionary point of view, doesn't lead to any kind of reproductive success in and of itself, and therefore is unlikely to be the case. Now, it could be that these modules happen to make you happy for some other reason, by virtue of the fact that they're doing whatever their job is. But the modules themselves are not designed, so you can't have one module whose job it is to make another module happy, right? Because from the standpoint of evolution, that's not a job at all. The only jobs natural selection will, will cause to come into existence are the ones that lead to outcomes in the world out there. I mentioned that there's a second problem with the self-esteem argument, which is that there has been just an incredibly broad industry of research looking at self-esteem, trying to show how important the quest for self-esteem is and how... Uh, how many effects it has on various kinds of psychological outcomes, and to a first approximation, despite decades of research and self-esteem and millions of dollars, uh, the effects in this literature are very close to zero. That this is an empirical matter. It doesn't look like if you're going to try to explain people's behavior, you're going to want self-esteem in there as your causal variable. But instead, here's what I want to argue. This is the style of argument that, that I, I think is useful and thinking about why it is that you're wrong about all of your traits. By the way, I'm sure all of you have just absolutely wonderful traits. Um, I'm not trying to say that uh, you're not. Just as on, on this note, as I was driving here, I was thinking about some of this research on, on drivers, um, which is very salient here in, in LA. Uh, they, they did a little study a number of years ago where they took 50 randomly selected people and they took 50 people who were in the hospital by virtue of the fact that they'd just been in a car accident. And they just said, how good a driver are you? and they just measure the two, and there is no statistical difference between those two groups. So cr literally crashing into cold, hard reality and other people is not enough to make you think that, in fact, you might not be the best driver on the planet. 
Anyway, um, so what I want to say is something that really goes all the way back to William James, uh, which is about self-fulfilling prophecies, which is, the argument goes like this. When you're trying to figure out what I'm like, one of the best pieces of information you have about me is what I say and what I do. So if I behave as though I'm one of these instructors who's in the top quartile of all possible instructors, um, if, if I you know, behave as though I'm a high-status guy and so on, you make inferences about my value, positive inferences about them. And so, of course, I'm not trying to argue here that, there's, that, that people are dissembling or lying. What I'm trying to say is that in the world, things are ambiguous. You know, usually you don't get into car accidents. So if I said, you know, I'm in the 80th percentile of drivers, maybe you would believe me. And I'm not even saying that in the sense that I'm not sincere about it. I might say that being sincere, thinking, thinking that I'm among them, and particularly because it's hard to say what does it mean to be a good driver. Is it someone who obeys the traffic laws? Is it someone who doesn't get into an accident despite not obeying the traffic laws? Is it someone who can do a bootlegger at 80 miles an hour? Right, so these things are ambiguous. My point is that if you believe that there are some modules whose job it is to project the most positive image of yourself that you can, to to persuade other individuals that you have valuable qualities that make you a, a good friend, associate, uh, team member, and so on, then these modular systems might be wrong and ignorant in exactly the same way that we talked about in the context of crossing the street in Philadelphia. If I don't know something bad about myself, and when I say I, Talking about this stuff gets a little bit awkward because one of the arguments I want to make is that when you use words like I, me, the self, and so on, you're talking about a modular system and so there's actually no there there. I don't actually think it makes sense in psychology to keep talking about I and the self because you're all little subsystems and that makes conversations like this tricky. Um, but but, but what, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say, uh, is that the, the press secretary system in my head can give me an advantage if it's if it's ignorant about facts which would be damaging if they leaked out. That's the crucial thing. In the same way that crossing the street in Philadelphia can be dangerous if you have knowledge about who's coming and other people know that fact, having information about your own negative qualities can actually be damaging in the social world. And so what I'm gonna argue here is that there are cases in which uh, ignorance and to some extent uh, error can actually be an, advent an advantage. So to sort of sum to this point, what I'm trying to say is that you have all these different systems in your head, and some of them give you an advantage by being wrong or ignorant, and they are coexisting with other modular systems in your head that have different jobs, and these modules can have different beliefs, they can have different preferences, and of course, eventually, you act as a unitary whole. It's not like people are uh, being literally pulled in different directions, although with some disorders you are literally being pulled in different directions, but the normal human being is not. And somehow these fights amongst modules get, get resolved, and how that happens is, is very interesting. But I want to just uh, now start trying to say a little bit about how all of this comes together and explains why everyone except for you is a hypocrite. One of the places that you have to start looking is, of course, in morality. And what I've been doing over the last few years in collaboration with some of my students is thinking a little bit about morality. And when I think about it, I always think about it in the same way that you would try to figure out what it is that a particular application in, a, in an iPhone is doing by looking at its properties, how it works, what's it doing, what's it up to. And so when we've been thinking about morality, the way we've been kind of conceptualizing it is that you, 
and I don't, I don't necessarily want to persuade you of this, I just ask you to sort of entertain this for the purpose of, of this little conversation that we're having, it looks like you have little modular systems in your head, and what they do is they identify certain things that other people are up to, and they condemn them for doing it, and, they're, and that you try to get people punished for doing those things. Right? We call these a little moralistic, a little moralistic module. Right? So people, and, and if you don't want to think about yourself, think about your kids, if you, if you have kids and when they were you know, two, three years old, just try to recall what it was like when they were going around and pretty much it seemed for a little time at least as though all they did was identify when someone had committed some moral violation and then tattle to the teacher or an adult or so on, right? And even if you try to extinguish this behavior, don't tattle on Jenny, right? It's not nice. Most of the, the research in developmental psychology says that in contrast to what one would expect from a kind of behaviorist model where you can punish something and extinguish it, you can't make it stop. Right, so the little moralistic machines. And what I would argue is that as results, as adults, we're like this too. I'm not going to cast aspersions about your recent opportunity out here to stop moralistically condemning people from doing, smoking certain things from particular plants that have a particular chemical in them. But I would say a majority of voters in this state apparently think that it's a good idea to continue to moralistically condemn and punish individuals who choose to uh, inhale these particular products. And as a psychologist, I, I, I feel comfortable saying we don't actually know why that is. We don't know why you guys care so much about other people toking up and getting stoned in the privacy of their own home. I'm not standing up here on a pro-drug thing. That's not my point. Um, <laughs> My point is that we don't know why people care so much, why people have modules that are designed to, to put their boot on other people's heads. And we do this all the time. Now, more or less in various kinds of places, right? All I need for the argument is that people are moralistic, that there's, there's modules designed to cause other people to not do certain kinds of things. We call these things moral norms or moral rules and so on. On the other hand, coexisting with your moralistic modules, I want to argue, are modules that are designed to cause you to behave in the world, to, to make choices, to do whatever it is you're going to do. So my argument here is that at the very same time, you can have a module in your head that is designed to stop other people from doing X for a wide variety of Xs, depending on culture and time and so on, and yet you have other modular systems in your head that drive you towards doing X for, again, a wide variety of Xs. Now, if we didn't have modular minds, you could imagine that there were mechanisms in your head that homogenized our behavior so that you couldn't both condemn X and do X. I do a little thought experiment when I'm trying to get this across. I always use Commander Data from, from Star Trek, which I suppose just says more about me than maybe I'd care to divulge, but he's a good example. If you want to have somebody else, you can imagine that whenever Commander Data is about to say something is wrong, he pulls out a tricord or something like that, and he just figures out, right? He looks at his list of things that are not okay. You know, LaForge, it would be wrong of you to point that phaser at Captain Picard and press the stun button or whatever it is, right? And that would be wrong. And then when he himself is going to do that behavior, hmm, I wonder if I should point my phaser at Captain Picard and pull the stun button or whatever it is, he wouldn't do it, right? You could imagine that the same principles are guiding behavior and condemnation. What I want to argue in humans is that because the modular architecture, that doesn't seem to be the case. So in the visual version of this presentation, I show this really nice picture. You can see it on Failblog, uh, where you have uh, an individual who I think quite appropriately has these bumper stickers on the back of their truck. And you know, it says, uh, I can read it here, you know, cars don't kill people, people driving while on their cell phone kill people, or something to that effect. Don't, you know, 
be on the phone while you're driving. And then it's a great shot because you can see into the cabin of the truck and the guy's on a cell phone, right? And so there is nothing, you can think of that, that bumper sticker, if you will, as his sort of moralistic modules doing what they're going to do, condemning other people's behavior, and then his own behavior is unconstrained by it. And because we're modular creatures, because we have these different systems separately condemning and acting, driven by different modular systems, you can get these contradictions. And so what I want to conclude with is the answer that I pose in the title, which is why it seems like everyone else is a hypocrite. And in order to get there, I want to tell the little story, which some of you have probably heard, about the two uh, people who are out uh, camping in the woods and they see a bear. And one of them starts to put his sneakers on. And the guy says to them, and he's like, uh, yeah, some of you already know it. Uh, he says, look, you, you, you can't outrun a bear. It's a bear. You, you, there's no point in putting your speaker, sneakers on. And the first guy says, I'm not going to try. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> and the idea here is that, yeah, other people notice inconsistencies. That, that definitely happens. We're on, we're on the lookout for other people's hypocrisies. But the world is complicated. And we don't always remember what people say. Not everyone was around. We have uh, limited memories and so on. It's true that it's a cost to be perceived as an inconsistent person, right? But you can be just as inconsistent as, you, as the guy who's in the joke about the bear, right? I don't have to be perfectly consistent. I just have to be as consistent as possible so that you don't notice that I haven't been, right? So I just have to run away from you. I don't have to run away from perfect consistency. And what that means is that if it's true that I might sometimes notice my own inconsistencies and leak it in the same way that Will Bailey as the press, press secretary in the West Wing might have leaked it, I'm actually better, better off not noticing when I'm inconsistent, right? Not having an inconsistency detector such that if I myself have identified this piece of inconsistent behavior, I can give myself a strategic advantage, minimizing the probability that other people in the social world are going to be able to identify this inconsistency and hold it against me. Because it is, it is true that people seem not to like hypocrites, and why that is is actually a, a, a little bit more complicated than I at least had thought it was. But the take-home message is that if you look at the research on bias and, and uh, research such as the one that I mentioned in, about the college instructors, is that you know, people are pretty biased. But the neat thing is that people think everyone else is even more biased than they are. And my argument is that this has to do, ultimately, with evolution and the modular mind. Thank you for your attention. I wonder if you had some thoughts about, I think we've, we've all seen in the past few years, a lot of instances of some of our public officials who like to um, espouse one type of public morality and then practice another private morality. Um, and maybe it's part of the same thing, or I don't know if it's a different question, of sort of some people seem to have a greater need to tell others how to live their lives than, than other people do? And it, I don't know if it's different parts of the same, or sides of the same coin or, or what. I don't want to go easy on the politicians here. Uh, but having said that, there's a funny thing about politicians, which is that unlike most other people, one, what you say tends to get written down or recorded these days, either on YouTube or whatever, on, on a cell phone or something like that. Um, and two, part of being a politician means taking a stand on the stuff you don't like. I would argue, I, would, I, I want to be delicate here because I, I hate politicians as much as the next guy and I'm not trying to give him a free ride, but, but when I'm a hypocrite, right, it's probably because I morally condemned something, but it's pretty unlikely that the New York Times reported on that a few years ago. You know, Rob says, you know, whatever, X is bad. 
I'm, I'm sure I haven't actually done any, anything that would have violated my own principles, obviously not. But, but what I'm trying to say is that there's something funny about politicians is that they're public, which means that their, their condemnation is recorded. And second, they tend to have to take positions on what they don't like. And so if you take those two things together, it's really easy to identify hypocrisy in the modern world because in cases in which you have individuals who are on the record as having condemned stuff. So for the definition of hypocrisy I use, and I am willing to, to grant that you can have a different definition, it's condemning X and doing X. How many times are we going around the world being on the record as condemning X? So that's one thing I would say. The, the second thing I would say, which is a really interesting question, we've just started doing a little bit of work on this, is that you know it just seems like some people are more moralistic than others. Some people just like to put their boot on other people's head more than other people do. And I think California, again, I don't want to keep getting back to this coastal thing, but you know, to, to a large extent, this is a pretty permissive state. I mean, the fact that I can buy wine in a grocery store here is just brilliant compared to Philadelphia where I have to go to a state-owned liquor store, right, during their hours, paying their prices for their supply. It drives me crazy, right? So, um, you know, th that's a case where you have this kind of legacy of a moralistic attitude towards this particular... By the way, here I am, alcohol, drugs. I, I'm not <laughs> Mr. Drug Guy. I just the good examples. Um, so, so I guess what I would say is that one of the things we don't really understand, let me put it this way, if we knew what morality was for, why people are trying to stop other people from doing stuff, then we would have better insight into the individual differences. Now, speaking of drugs, um, and I might as well go all the way here, sex, right? Uh, we, I have a paper with a couple of collaborators, Jason Whedon, uh, that came out last year in the Proceedings of the Royal Society in which we do go after your question. So what we show is that people who are opposed to the use of recreational drugs also tend to be the people who are opposed to sexual promiscuity. And so what we're trying to do is link individual differences very, and we have a theory about why that should be, and now we've replicated it in Japan and Belgium. If you know what morality is for, then you can try to figure out where the variance is going to be in terms of individual differences. And we're just starting to build that theory right now, but it's a fantastic question. Uh, professor, uh, you talk about modules and uh, so on. You never ever mention peer review. You talk about everything else but. May I ask your comments on that? If I had to take a position on it, I'm in favor. Uh, so I'm certainly pro-peer review. I mean, if you mean literally the institution of peer review, I could wax about that for quite a long period of time. Um, I, I would say that uh, from my, my point of view, I think a peer review in the same way was that Churchill talked about democracy, where it's this horrible system whose only virtue is that it's better than all the others. Um, and I think there's something to that. Uh, I guess what I would, uh, would say is not much deeper than that, which is that peer review is an important part of the scientific process, and I certainly endorse it. I think one of the things that's happening right now with the movement of information is that um, the review process is being, to some extent, externalized into the world. So people are publishing papers in Nature. Within three weeks, the blogosphere erupts and identifies all these problems with papers, which I think is actually great. I actually think that we're going to be better off. It's just not organized. I have a question regarding um, the information age that we've come into and uh, with regards to the duplicity you're talking about. Um, as as uh, uh, recording of information and the recall is becoming so much easier, do you think uh, this duplicity, I mean, uh, speaking of what, what he said earlier, how in the campaign uh, earlier in 2008, John McCain, or, or actually most of the older um, uh, uh, politicians are finding it harder to, to change their positions on subjects and stuff, and I was wondering if, uh, you think with the advent of all these technologies and the re recall that makes that possible uh, with conversations and, and you know just positions that people can take, do you think the duplicitous nature of people 
um, will you know, disappear over time. Resist the, the notion of duplicity to some extent only because it implies intent that I don't always think is there. So I think people, whatever it means to sincerely believe something at time one and then sincerely believe it's opposite at time two, I actually think that, that there is a sense in which, and I'm holding aside the notion of actually changing positions, which is another possibility. I, I, all I want to say is that duplicity, I think, is slightly stronger than I would say. But, but there's, a, there's a, a weaker form of your question that I think is really interesting, which is related, which is something like, are people going to exert more effort to be consistent and coherent over time, give, given the fact that there, that there are these um, externalized memory systems. That, I think, is totally true. What, what surprises me, in some sense, is that people aren't doing a very good job of this. As you indicated, you have uh, some politicians who are quite, at least in my opinion, they flip in these very funny ways, presumably knowing, at least it's, I, I think, or maybe not, that, that they're, they're on the record the other way somewhere in the, in the, his, in the past. So I guess what I would say is that, you know, I, I take a strong view on this. I mean, I think human nature is human nature. I do think, of course, it's flexible and it, and it depends on the cultural context and technologies and tools that are around us. So I do think people are going to change a little bit. Um, having said that, it also, you know, there's this other edge to that sword, which is that with all the information, all the recording of stuff out there, there's a kind of a signal-to-noise ratio problem. I mean, the fact that not only can I find out what Jane, John McCain's position was, but I can also find out you know, what my next door neighbor's dog barked like three years ago. I mean, all of that is in the, in the inter not, not my neighbor, whatever. I'm just saying, there's all this information out there. And it's true, it's, it's fairly well organized, all things considered. But still, there is a possibility that information gets lost, not because it's not recorded, but because it's in the mix. But I, I mean, I think that's a totally, totally reasonable possibility that consistency will increase over time. And I just wanted to ask you to tell us a little more about the research you're doing on moralistic punishment. One of the things that we've been, we've been uh, looking at, and, and thanks for the question, um, is this, this kind of interesting tension that there is. So on the one hand, people are highly moralistic in the sense that they're very quick to identify other people's shortcomings. On the other hand, uh, people don't actually seem to be willing to endure many costs to impose costs on other people. And I... I we run some experiments in which we show that if A and B interact and I'm a third part of the transaction and I have an opportunity to punish A for doing something bad to B, and this is a gross oversimplification, by and large, I don't do it. I'd rather not get involved. I'd rather not endure the cost. So on the one hand, you have people who are very quick to identify other people's moral failings. On the other hand, they don't enforce moral rules. And again, since I'm in a media environment, I just want to make one plug. We're actually trying to do some research bringing together data from a television show called What Would You Do? Which has vignettes in which something bad happens. And then the question is, do people intervene? And it's an incredibly rich source of data asking this question about the probability that people are going to intervene conditional on observing some moral failing on the part of a third party or, or a second party, however you want to think about it. And what we're doing right now with that data set is you know, trying to identify what factors influence intervention. But my reading of that, and I, I know that this might not be a popular view when I say that given what's going on in the, in the scholarly literature, my reading is that people are not particularly strong interventionalists. That is, they notice and they condemn acts, but they themselves don't impose costs on them, at least in the cultures that, that, that I've been looking at and we're trying to do some replication. So that's, that's one of the directions that we're taking the work. But thank you. How would you position within the hypocritical system a George W. B. versus a Obama? 
so I'd like to return to the beginning of the question, which, which was about my productivity, which I want to thank you for. Um, <laughs> and to remind people who might not have remembered. Um, Having already stuck my neck out on uh, liquor sales and uh, drug use, and I guess I mentioned sex in there, I am going to respectfully decline to draw comparisons. And, but I will, I will say, and this connects to a previous question, I, you know, again, with politicians, you know, let me put it this way, there's a reason these guys go into politics. And I, I, I don't necessarily want to say that, you know, some, something that is so broad that it, is, it, it doesn't leave room for the notion that there's obviously, you know, people who are of, let's say, particularly strong moral fiber, uh, as it were, or let's just say consistent in the context of this conversation. Um, but I will say that I'm completely sympathetic to the frustration that people um, who, I mean, who, who are on any uh, of any political stripe. And again, just beg your indulgence on easing off the specific question that you've asked. question is, we're coming on to what would be um, Ronald Reagan's 100th birthday. And um, in many ways, you can look back on, on his career in politics and see a through line of hypocrisy. And my real question is, do people care less now um, that that, that uh, uh, politicians in particular, but in general, that people are, are hypocritical. And that do they just, are, they, are people more compassionate in attributing that to simply the human condition? And with also the possibility that people evolve and see things from a different yeah. point of view. The current context that we have in this country is a, is a, is a two-party system. And people in those parties have a lot to gain by supporting their candidate, their, their particular party, their, and so on, independent of their failings, in many cases, up until it gets to some particular level at which there's sort of a populist rule. But these, that's my perception. What that says to me is that people on one particular side of the aisle, when they're evaluating the consistencies of the people who are at the front of their particular political parties, are likely to be sympathetic, not because they're sympathetic to inconsistencies in general, but because of the same reason that I identified here, which is that it's in their interest to overlook inconsistencies of the people who lead their parties in particular. What I'm saying is that, yes, people are inconsistent about the enforcement of inconsistency, right? So when my guy is inconsistent, well, the world changed a little bit. When your guy is inconsistent, he's a hypocrite. And I think that's the flavor of the political dialogue. I don't read the, the polity in this country as being more sympathetic, more empathic to the notion of human foibles. If anything, I read it the other way. It's just that you don't hear it from within the party, you hear it from without. I have a question, I guess, about the role of religion um, and or uh, cultural pressures to conform or to have certain beliefs. Um, where the, the rigidity of a certain kind of system, I wonder whether it um, results in a difference in terms of hypocrisy or inconsistency because people aren't free to actually think. One, one thing that we've been looking at a little bit, and this is some work with my former graduate student, Peter Tsholi, um, is the kind of puzzling link between religion and what I would call these moralistic systems. For, for, for some reason, which I think some people think is obvious, but I, I don't, maybe I'm just not as quick as other people, there seems to be this relationship between organized religions and lots of rules about what you can't do or what you get punished for doing either now or in the afterlife if you believe in one. 
And th that's a really interesting question. I don't believe that that has been answered to, to at least to my satisfaction. So what I would say is I wouldn't put it necessarily in the context of inflexibility because I think I wouldn't want to go quite that far in terms of the claim, although I'm, I'm perfectly willing to be persuaded. But I, I wouldn't necessarily stipulate that without additional persuasion. But what I would say is that a really interesting feature of religion is that in virtue of being members of, of organized religions, you sacrifice your, your ability to do a, a set of items on pain of punishment by that particular group or instead of institutions, many of which are puzzling. I mean, so you go back and you look at you know, the charging of interest, right? the fact that that's moralized, which makes basically everyone worse off. Right? You have money, I, have, I wanna you know, start a business. It's harder for both of us. Right? You can't make money by using your capital, I can't start my business. Why is that bound up with religion? Why should religion as a supernatural collective, as a social phenomenon, be concerned with economic transactions, particularly economic transactions that make people better off. So I think if we answered that question, why does religion care about stopping you from doing all sorts of things, we'd come really close to getting to the deeper question that you're asking. Talk a little bit about the role of the press challenging politicians and religious leaders with respect to hypocrisy. How it is that the advent of recording devices has changed people's ability to be, t to be inconsistent without anyone noticing. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I think is great um, is how the producers or whoever it is that works on the show, I don't really know how, the, how television works, on things like the, the, the Colbert Report and um, the Jon Stewart one, where these guys can literally just find clips of people saying the reverse of the thing. And I think that's an incredibly valuable service. And I think what, what that's telling us is something about connecting up to this previous question about how careful people are gonna to have to be in the future to make sure they know what they said, particularly in the context not just of what it is they're gonna to say tomorrow, but what they're gonna to do tomorrow, right? So the example that I often use is, is, is Spitzer. That was kind of an obvious case, right? You can't get up in front of a, you know, the state of New York and say, you know, I'm gonna go after the, the prostitution rings and I'm gonna bring integrity to the office and then, you know. And so I think in those cases, the, the press has an, has an easy job. But again, I, I do want to say that it's not obvious to me that identifying inconsistencies is necessarily going to do the trick insofar as people are willing to forgive inconsistencies when their interest is tied up and bound to the interests of the political leaders of their particular party or, pol or, or, or political group. Uh, I want to come back to this press secretary metaphor that you had earlier. Um, and it's often best that the press secretary not know everything. Uh, and I think a good example of that would be, I think his name was Scott McClellan, the uh, second press secretary under Bush. Half the time it looked like he didn't know what was going on and <laughs> was sweating a lot when asked tough questions. Or, or he's a very good actor, I'm not right. sure. So that metaphor with what you were talking about with the mind, our press secretaries, our modular press secretaries sort of don't know what the rest of our minds know. Uh, but sometimes we do get in trouble where we maybe endorse something and then we're caught doing the same thing. Do you have any experiments or do you know of any work where when people are then sort of, con you, you mentioned it a little bit with the drivers who got into an accident, but if you sort of push people on, hey, you just committed this violation, how does their press secretary, how do they then talk about it in these experiments? One of the things that's interesting about this literature is that everyone sort of just assumes that appearing inconsistent is a bad thing. And so by virtue of that assumption, no one's really looked into it uh, in much depth. I would just say a couple things. Uh, there's a student of Dan Sperber, who is an anthropologist uh, in France, named Hugo Mercier, who has begun to do some research into this. That's one entry point into the literature. But the, the short answer to your question is that, you know, people, 
So in, in the pantyhose case, people are very easy to, it's very easy for people to spin a story about why they chose those particular pantyhoses. The world is complicated, and my sense in the context of explaining one's own inconsistency is that people tend to bring in lots of different possible reasons for it. So, I mean, the usual one is, look, the world has changed. When I said the prostitution was bad, it was, that was a different world. We really had to stop prostitution back then. When I availed myself of their services, it wasn't as big of a problem. Now, that, of course, wasn't his defense, but you could imagine defenses of that type. Um, of course, people are willing, are, can say, I changed my view, right? Um, so I think that, that, again, I would go back to the bears. As long as my argument can twist you up enough so that you can't detect the fact that I'm continuously being inconsistent, then it seems to me that all I need to do to win that social game is stay just ahead of your ability to detect the flaws in these, in these styles of arguments. And I think that's what one sees. You see this in politicians and you see it in everyday life. I mean, maybe this is my own experience, but certainly in the context of my relationship, I may or may not have had to dig for reasons why it was that having said that we shouldn't do X, I later said that maybe we should. And I think that uh, people are pretty good at developing these narratives. You can develop narratives about all kinds of crazy different things, even if those facts don't you know, bear out in the world, as long as your interlocutor can't identify that fact. But I think that there's another an area in which the research at this point is still more or less in its infancy. The fact that we don't really know just how bad it is to be perceived as an inconsistent individual, I think, is a symptom of the larger picture here, which is that there's still a lot of work to be done.